Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is the New Books in Law podcast. My name is Ian Drake, and I am with Terry Diane Halperin. She is the author of a book on the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798, Testing the Constitution. It's part of a series called Witness to History, uh, edited by the um, or published by the Johns Hopkins University Press, edited by Peter Charles Hoffer and William James Hull Hoffer. And, Terry, you are a member of the University of Richmond History Department. Uh, Tell us what brought you to this topic. What made you want to write about the Alien and Sedition Acts? Well, the Alien and Sedition Acts are a big part of a class I teach, um, which is called Liberty versus Security, which looks at issues about um, political speech and political debate and dissent from colonial America through the Civil War. And we spend a fair amount of time um, on the Alien and Sedition Acts as a significant episode or debate about these issues of, of speech, free speech, and participation in the in political debate, um, and how to, how to participate, and who can participate, um, and what kinds of topics can be um, discussed. Um, and so that's how I came to the topic from through my teaching, really. And who's your intended audience for the book? Um, the intended audience for the series, the Hopkins series, is really undergraduates um, for various types of classes, you know, either whether it's the American History Survey or a class on the early republic or even a class on constitutional law or legal history um, could fit with this book. Okay. And what I'd like to start with is talking about uh, an example that you use right at the beginning. Um, uh, you talk about Benjamin Franklin Bache in uh, May of uh, 1798 and this confrontation that he has with a bunch of um, spirited citizens. So can you describe, uh, number one, tell us also why you picked this incident, what what you see it as illustrating, but also uh, what, in fact, it does uh, illustrate for uh, the importance of the acts. Well, I think it, um, well, the the episode is when, a group of young men in Philadelphia have gotten together, had gotten together earlier in the evening, um, had probably drunk a lot, had a big dinner, gone and gone and visited President Adams um, and expressed their support of his policies at that time, and then had gone um, to attack uh, one of Adams's biggest critics, um, Benjamin Franklin Beach, and his newspaper, the Aurora. And you have a somewhat violent, or there's a lot of potential for a violent confrontation between the two groups. And I think it shows one just the the tension, um, the the tension and the the anxiety that Americans felt at the time about their future. Um, they are, you know, it's a very precarious time for the United, the new United States. Um, they are at. It is during the quasi war with France, which was a navy war. So there's naval conflict with France, and they are. Um, Adams had sent envoys to France to negotiate a settlement, and that failed. And now America seems to be on the brink of perhaps war um, with France. 
So I think it shows the tension. It also shows that how the politics is is in the streets and people are taking it to each other physically um, as well as verbally and verbal exchanges and through the newspapers as as well. So I think it shows the danger really of that moment and of this time. So Beige is a newspaper editor and publisher. Mm -hmm. And why are these young guys so upset with him? What's he done in particular? Well, his newspaper is, I'd say, stridently and very much um, out there as a Democratic Republican newspaper. And it was very critical of of Adams and the Federalists and of the Federalist policies. Um, and so they see, I think this this mob or this group of young men um, really see Beach as as dangerous to the republic. He's threatening the order and the security of the, the republic by relentlessly um, and pretty viciously um, criticizing Adams and the Federalist Party and the government. And for them, criticizing the government was criticizing the nation, was criticizing the Constitution. Um, there's no separation between sort of the administration of government and the nation itself, itself, they thought of them as one in the same. And so you attack the president, you're attacking the United States. Okay, and I want to do want to address the, um, the different perspectives that both the Federalists and the Jeffersonians or the Democratic Republicans had. This prologue story that you give us about Beish and the confrontation with these young guys is um, kind of in medias race. You, you start in the beginning of the conflict, uh, really even before the laws themselves have taken effect or the prosecutions um, against uh, mm-hmm. different purported violators of the laws. Uh, you spend much of the early part of the book, of course, talking about the 1790s in a, in a broad context and the political confrontations and the the party uh, formations or what will become parties in uh, the late dec- later part of the decade. So these laws don't just arise out of nowhere. Um, they are, as I think you uh, are explicitly arguing, these are laws that are viewed in a context of international relations and the protection of the union um, as you see it, uh, as they saw it uh, throughout the 1790s. So what for you is the starting point of conflict that ultimately will produce uh, the impetus for these laws? Well, I think it, it grows over the the course of the, the the decade and the initial divisions between Jefferson and and Hamilton, um, and then as they grow into to more articulated political parties or factions in the mid 1790s, really the immediate context for the Alien and Sedition Acts themselves is this conflict with France, is the, the French Revolution um, and the the wars in, in Europe. And the Federalists really see the Alien and Sedition Acts as part, as defense measures, as a way, as part of their way to defend the, the nation. They're going to build up the Navy, they're going to build up the Army, um, but then they also have to defend against internal enemies, um, whether they are non-citizens and recent immigrants or whether they are citizens who are simply speaking out um, against the against the government. Um, and so it's all part of a way to defend the union during this time when they really feel the union um, and the nation and American independence is particularly vulnerable. So I see that there's a long run up to it. And I think to understand um, 
their different the different visions for what the American Republic should look like between the Democratic Republicans and the Federalists. Um, and therefore, those are articulate. Those different visions are really articulated in the Alien and Sedition Acts, and then in the responses to them. They we have to understand the earlier part of the decade um, too, because they don't just come out of nowhere. Sure, and so these divisions in terms of uh, the philosophy of the Union certainly existed at the time of the ratification, the proposal and uh, ratification period of the Constitution, which you really don't cover. You start uh, in the early 1790s after the government's mm-hmm. already up and running. And, right. it, and I agree that uh, it seems to me that the real impetus for this that really uh, highlights the fissures between these groups is the reactions to the French Revolution and yeah. the violence to it and what what place it puts this young nation vis-a-vis both England and France once France decides it wants to export its revolution by potentially going to war against all of Europe. So um, how do the Federalists react to the French Revolution, especially once it turns violent? Yeah, well, I think at first there's um, broad consensus in America in favor of the French Revolution. But as the French Revolution turns bloodier um, and more violent and more chaotic um, with um, the September massacre where, you know, a lot of priests were killed. That seems like an attack on religion. And so a lot of New England um, ministers, congregational ministers begin, began to turn around, turn away from the French Revolution, then the more conservative ministers, and then with the terror and with the execution of the king, what the Federalists see is just this this chaos and um, instability. And they fear with all these Frenchmen coming to America, fleeing the revolution, um, and Irishmen fleeing their own rebellion and repression by um, from the British, too, at the same time, they fear that what's happening is that the chaos and the instability in Europe is being exported and being transplanted to America. Um, and they don't want to become like France. Um, and so they, they need to protect against, against that. They, they protect against the chaos to hold the union together, hold the nation together, and to preserve its independence. And you point out uh, later on uh, in the book that there are some legitimate examples that the Federalists can point to uh, where you really do have uh, some foreign policy objectives on the part of the French in terms of the Western U.S. then at the time uh, being the Appalachians uh, mm-hmm. that are essentially uh, territory that they see as potentially ripe for the picking. And so there are some concrete fears that these Federalists have. They're not merely reactionary uh, um, uh, nativists, right? Right, right. I mean, there are there are a lot of... I mean, I think that um, I've read estimates that about 10% of of Philadelphia's population in the mid-1790s was French. Um, And there are Frenchmen. The Spanish are in, you know, have West Florida and East Florida and Louisiana. And they're a weak nation, um, certainly a weak imperial nation. And um, and thus... um, you know, there there is concern, and the French are sort of mapping. Um, you know, they have some guy, somebody who's going along in the West and mapping um, the rivers and the territory, talking to people, see how loyal the Westerners are to um, to the to the United States um, and to America, um, and whether their loyalty could be could be played with. 
So there certainly are concerns about the integrity of the union, and I think those are ongoing too. Those those don't just come in the 1790s, but those are present in the 1780s, um, you know, from right after independence um, on. Um, and so the the Federalists. So the so there are some real examples of of fears of the. Um, of what the French are doing and what, um, and the ideas that America, that the Im immigrants are bringing to America um, as as well, um, and how destabilizing these can be to a very new union and a what they seem to think is a very precarious union as as well. And it's not just the French; it's also a concern with the Irish too. What what's right. the reason for that? Well, the Irish in 1798 rebelled against British rule, um, and there's some quite some radical Irishmen um, who, um, when Britain passes its own Sedition Act um, and starts to repress the rebellion in Ireland, they flee to America, um, really jump on ships and flee to America. And a lot of them in Ireland, they had been newspaper men, um, they had written pamphlets, or they had been involved in the rebellion in some degree or another, and they continue to do that once they get to America. Um, Bache employs um, several of them in his newspapers. In his newspaper, um, they start their own newspaper, and so here those Irishmen seem to be, you know, discontinuing their rebellion. They still support their, um, com their, you know, their colleagues in Ireland. Um, and it seems, and they draw some of them actually draw these explicit. John Bailey um, Daly Burke, for instance, wrote a pamphlet where he drew like exact parallels. He connected what was happening in Ireland um, to the Irish, um, to what happened in Western Pennsylvania with the Whiskey Rebels. Um, he sees this, this, you know, he is drawing these parallels between what is happening in Europe and what is happening in Amer and what was happening in America. Um, and so the Federalists see these. These two, this too is just as dangerous as the Frenchmen, um, you know, running around speculating in property and mapping American rivers and doing whatever else they were doing as well. And I was intrigued by the fact that these are, these are really literate rebels here. Um, mm -hmm. they, these are not bomb throwers in the literal sense, but they're rhetorical bomb throwers, it seems. And this right. is what these young men at the beginning of the book are so upset with Beish about, is that he's publishing things that they detest or or he's advocating a state of affairs i suppose that they fear right. and um so this ultimately will bear fruit in the sedition act that's one of the four acts that's going to be passed in 1798 and so um what i guess we can do right now is talk about um the political lead-up you talk about for example george washington's proclamation of neutrality uh -huh. And um, in 1793, and so, can you explain uh, the cause, apparent cause and effect uh, from the neutrality and the reaction to that, and then what happens with the Jay Treaty, and explain that line of back and forth that helps lead up to the summer of 1798? Well, I think those two episodes, what they really show is how um, both both Federalist leaders. And Democratic leader and Democratic Republican leaders, Jeffersonian leaders, um, wanted to engage the people. I wanted to show that um, that you know, the Federalists are often portrayed as being afraid of the people, um, but they were quite willing to engage them um, in support of their policies. So the Neutrality Proclamation, which really became a debate about executive power and whether Washington had the right to 
issue an executive order declaring Americans um, neutrality or whether it needed to be an act of Congress. Um, during that crisis or during that controversy and that debate, um, you know, what Federalist leaders, um, they organized petition campaigns, re campaigns of um, writing remonstrances, public meetings, and those were all sent, those records were all both published in the newspapers and sent to Washington, and then Washington responded. And I think that shows the Federalists were willing to, to engage the people in support of their policy to show that they had the people's consent, that they had the people's support. And you can see the same thing happening over the um, controversy over the Jay Treaty, Two, which really solidified those party lines between the um, Jeffersonians and, and the Federalists. Um, but again, you have a, a huge camp petition drive um, in favor of the treaties. You have a series of anti-treaty meetings um, as well. Um, you have anti-treaty demonstrations. Um, and so that the, the politics indoors, inside of Congress and inside of the government, is really connected to the politics out of doors and in the streets, which I think also is part of what was going on with the episode in May of 1798 with Benjamin Franklin Beach and, and that mob um, as well. Um, and so once you get to the Alien and Sedition Acts and, the, and in 1798, the same kind of public demonstrations and use of petitions um, and use of public meetings um, and the resolutions being published in various newspapers, that's a way to inform other parts of the country about what is happening locally um, and it's a way to connect what is happening inside of government with what is happening outside of government. I think it shows um, you know, there's there's no polling, but um, as we have today, but what you have is um, people showing and demonstrating their support for one side or or the other, and so people are engaged on both sides. It's not just the Republicans who are out in the streets demonstrating and destroying property or or whatever. And of course, the uh, the Neutrality Act irritates. Uh, especially the Jeffersonians, because what they want is Washington administration to come out strongly in favor of this new revolution in France. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, what are the concerns of the Washington administration? In other words, what motivates the proclamation of neutrality? Well, I think that neither side, no one really wanted to be um, become part of the European war that there's a feeling that America was not was not strong enough. And if America entered into the war into the war on the side of France, which is what the treaties that they signed with France during the revolution, the treaties in 1778 would have required them to do, that would have invited attacks from 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 Britain. Um, and in fact that's what precipitated the immediate events which um, it, well that's comes right after the neutrality proclamation where Britain really ups its attacks on American shipping within the next year or so, or, or a little bit less. But um, so I think that neither side wanted, n no American necessarily wanted to be get, become part of the, um, the, the, Europe the growing and widening European war. They wanted to remain neutral. The question really was how to do it. And, and Hamilton argued in the cabinet meetings that and in memos to to Washington that the the executive needed the energy um, and it needed to to be able to act um, and needed to be able to act immediately um, and with conviction 
and that the all the president was doing was just preserving what the status quo was which was which was peace um and jefferson and madison and others argued that really um no this was a power for congress because um if congress had the power to declare war congress also therefore had the power not to declare war um and hamilton started writing for the newspapers and defending the neutrality proclamation um Matt and then Jefferson said, you know, wrote to Madison to please take up his pen to pick out the worst heresies and rip him to shreds effectively. And Ham and Madison started writing for the newspapers. But you also not you just have this you have a debate in the newspapers between Hamilton and Madison, but you also have this wider engagement of the public, of the broader populace. Um, in these meetings, these public meetings and petitioning campaigns um, as as well. So these disputes uh, between the Jeffersonians and the Hamiltonians about the proper uh, uh, couch for authority, whether it's in the executive or the uh, uh, the Congress, you don't view these as merely stalking horses. Uh, these are these are earnest, uh, um, earnestly held views that are not merely fronts for trying to determine who's going to be able to have a, um, uh, a much more popular reception for the argument regarding France and neutrality. I mean, that's important, obviously, for these groups. Right. But also, in other words, you believe that the, these are earnest divisions about proper ex- executive versus congressional authority. Yeah, I think they're real. They're real debates, and I think that, they're, that both sides have sincerely held and beliefs um, about what the republic should look like and what how the new how the federal government is still relatively new um, should act and what its role should be. I think a big part of that too is is the role of the people. What should the role of the people be in a republic? Um, Really, should they should the people um, always um, is the people's role to support the government? Um, and to help to provide stability um, for the government and therefore um, to express their views during campaigns and elections, which Washington really said was an expression of the will of the people um, and also an expression of the common good. Um, Or should the people be more actively involved um, at all times and not just in times of election, but more so... um, more so vigilant and watchful of the government to make sure that the government does not overstep its bounds. I, mean, I think that's really like a, the real, the, the sort of underlying debate in the controversies le- leading up to the Alien and Sedition Acts. And that's another point. I'm glad you brought it up regarding the legitimacy of opposition. In other words, is it only expressed during elections when there's a decision to be made by the voters, or can opposition carry over into the governing period, once people have taken office and the next election is only a couple of years down the road, but still they've got a period where they are essentially allowed to govern unmolested as they see it. Right. And um, you suggest that, and I wanted to clarify, um, perhaps this is my uh, failure to understand uh, the reading as I under, as I read it, is, is this the view that opposition should not occur during governance is that only the Federalists, or do the Jeffersonians also believe that once they are in power? Oh, well, I think um, it is certainly the Federalists. I think once the Jeffersonians get into in in power, um, 
you know, it, you are in a different position once you're in power as opposed to being in the opposition. It's a different perspective. And Jefferson does express his um, frustration um, and his um, impatience, I would call it, with, with the press and the newspapers that are now really attacking him seemingly all the time. And so, you know, sometimes he sound, he can sound a little bit like a federalist, um, insisting on, on, on truth um, and whatnot. And, and what is clear um, about Jefferson, um, even before he, came, he was elected president, is that he didn't oppose all sedition acts. He only opposed a Federal Sedition Act, which he believed was unconstitutional because of the First Amendment. Um, state con states could have um, sedition acts. And in fact, you know, he wanted to and he said in his second inaugural that, you know, one problem was the states were not really enforcing their their sedition acts um, and they should be um, in, enforced. Um, so he had no problem necessarily with um, state level sedition acts. It was our, our libel laws, but it was just the federal government which could not have a sedition act. So in other words, the Jefferson, or at least Jefferson himself, yeah. is not exactly Thomas Paine uh, ideologically through and through, mm -hmm. right? He's not right. a free speech libertarian. Um, right. Uh, and so... The um, the the Jay Treaty seems to, from the Jeffersonians' perspective, it, it essentially violates the neutrality position, right? Yeah, it violates. They feel it violates the neutrality position. It violates the treaties, the French treaties from 1778. It it um, leans American neutrality towards Britain, um, and and they feel that it 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 really compromises American sovereignty and independence. Um, and it doesn't solve the problem about neutral rights or the, the rights of neutral shipping. Um, so because Britain doesn't want to negotiate on that on that point um, at all. Um, and so, the, you know, they don't they don't like it for those for those reasons. You also uh, note some of the fears that are um, created out of the experience of the Whiskey Rebellion. Can you can you summarize what that was, what that event was and what it uh, what fruit it bore for the, the relationship to the alien sedition acts? Well, I think the Whiskey Rebellion, again, was a question about how, how to dissent. And it was about opposition to the excise tax on on spirits, on, on whiskey, um, which those in western Pennsylvania and other western um, and in the areas, other western areas of other states, so it's not just Pennsylvanians who are protesting the the tax, but they refused to, to pay um, the tax. They didn't want to pay the tax. They they harassed their neighbors who who did not pay it. They attacked um, tax collectors, um, they uh, and other government officials. And it did end in a it did result in some violent clashes um, and actual deaths. Um, but it but what I think and then Washington in the summer of 1794 called out the militia to go and suppress um, the rebellion. So this was the first time under the new constitution that um, a, the federal military force in this form of the state, state militias was going to be used domestically against American citizens. Um, and Hamilton writes this, wrote this letter um, really justifying and explaining um, Washington's um, policy and decision to send, send troops. Um, to Western Pennsylvania, in which he says essentially that you know this law was passed by the majority of Americans. It was passed by the House of Representatives and the Senate, signed by the President, and that it's fine to protest uh, 
a law um, and it has been revised. They've listened to the protests. Um, they've listened to the petitions um, and the, the law was revised. The, the tax wasn't repealed, but the law was revised a little bit. Um, but then the rebels, those in Western Pennsylvania, they went too far because it wasn't just about the specific law, but it became more about the general, the government in general. Um, and then they started to violently resist the law. Um, so you can protest and you can express your dissent and criticize the law, but you have to always obey the law. Um, and so really, I think what the Whiskey Rebellion was about was how to dissent. It was clear after the Whiskey Rebellion, you could not dissent violent through violence and um, violent uh, or, or disobedience to the law. Um, as Americans had did during the revolution, um, that that was no longer a um, legitimate way to dissent, um, that you could dissent through petitions um, and through public meetings with narrow agendas, um, not with broad agendas attacking the whole government, um, that that was really the acceptable way. In the aftermath of the Whiskey Rebellion, Washington, um, in his annual message to Congress um, that fall in November of 1794, you know, he condemned self-created societies. These were societies like the Democratic Republican societies um, and the people in Western Pennsylvania who led this rebellion, who, who claimed to speak for the people, um, but didn't speak for the people because they weren't elected by the people. They are sort of self-appointed spokesmen for the people. And Washington's argument was that these people, these groups were dangerous because they didn't have the common good. Um, they weren't thinking about the common good, but they were only thinking about their own self-interest and their own serving their own ambitions. Um, and therefore, they were dangerous um, to the to the republic. So. After the Whiskey Rebellion and then after Jay's Treaty, we have uh, these both domestic examples and foreign policy examples that create fear on the part of the Federalists that dissent itself can cause chaos, right? Right. Uh, in other words, the Federalists, quote unquote, win the Whiskey Rebellion, but it's also a, it's uh, the poster child for why dissent can be harmful to the Republic. Right, because right. the Whiskey Rebellion started with, with talking and with newspaper pieces and um, with with various peaceful protests. And then so when does it cross that line from just simply dissent and, and criticism of the government to, to treason um, or, you know, and rebellion? Um, and, you know, the Federalists would have put that line very much far over. Um, the The Democratic Republicans maybe would have let more, there'd be more dissent, more criticism until it crossed that line to, to treason. So if, if all of this comes to a head in the 17, in reaction to um, Jay's treaty in 1795, why do the Alien Sedition Acts come along three years later? Well, I mean, they, they see, they see the, the danger, but then, you know, really with the, the Jay treaty really did solve some problems. And there is a period of peace and calm in terms of foreign policy, um, where American shipping is, 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 is doing, is okay, is not completely under attack at all times. Um, and they also resolve a lot of the problems in, in the West, um, that at the same time they signed the Jay Treaty, they signed a treaty with Spain reopening the Mississippi River. They also um, signed a treaty with the um, Native Americans in the Northwest Territory opening Ohio to settlement. And I think that really solves the, the, the immediate problems. And there's a period of calm 
um, in, you know, it doesn't last very long, but there's a little period of, of calm. Um, the French in the summer of 1796 issued a secret decree um, saying basically renouncing the, the treaty, the, their treaties with the United States um, and basically saying we're, they're going to treat American shipping just as badly as the British did. Um, they were going to start attacking American ships in reaction to the Jay Treaty because the French believed that the Jay Treaty was really a violation of their, of their treaties with the United States. Um, and in that context, you also have at the same time the election of 1796, which is the last, which is the first election without Washington. Um, and so, and that, you know, so there isn't, there's a period, um, a little period of calm, but there is also a building crisis. Um, no longer now, the, no longer now is the really the biggest crisis with Britain, and now it is with France. So. And then, of course, we've got the um, uh, the new presidency, who uh, seems to be a bit more prickly uh, <laughs> than uh, perhaps Washington was. I know Washington's famous for his temper, but uh, Adams is too, in a way. Um, I think probably Washington actually a little more self control than Adams over his temper. But <laughs> agreed. <laughs> um, and so we get these. Uh, Encounters on the sea between French and American ships, mm -hmm. which um, propels Adams to come up with some diplomatic way of trying to resolve this. And famously, the and this is something we learn because it's the XYZ affair. We've learned this since grade school. Nobody remembers right. what it is, but uh, <laughs> you you can explain uh, how this plays a role in the buildup to 1798 because uh, of what happens with this in France. So Adams did what Washington did when with with um, the when the Washington sent Jay to England to negotiate a settlement or try to ease tensions. So. Adams did the same thing, but he sent three men instead of um, instead of one. Um, and when they got to France, they met with um, the French government, identified in the dispatches as X, Y, and Z. Um, so, and sometimes I think there was a fourth. So I think sometimes W showed up. Um, but the French government essentially said, "Well, we're not going to negotiate with you um, until you agree to extend loans to France, um, so France can finance its military endeavors, um, and also pay us some bribes." And so, the American envoys refused to negotiate. They felt that it was a insult to American sovereignty and independence that France wasn't treating Americans as equals. Um, but as sort of a toy to be played with. Um, and they sent back these dispatches, which John Marshall wrote. And at first, Adams kept them secret. Um, but then um, because of, um, but then Congress demanded that, the, that Adams hand them over, um, and then Congress published them. And in part, that's a demand from the Jeffersonian Republicans who didn't really believe that the French had acted so horribly. Um, and it was also a demand from Federalists who were who who wanted to go to war with France, um, who wanted to escalate the conflict. So it's sort of a weird a coalition. Um, and so once those dispatches became public, um, then um, you really have calls for going to war with France um, to, for, to defend American independence and sovereignty and, and honor. Um, and that really brings the whole conflict with France out into the open. 
And it's in that context that the Federalists um, start to pass legislation to shore up American defenses by building more ships. Um, they created the Department of the Navy then. Um, they also increased the size of the Army dramatically. And then they turned their attention to domestic um, security um, by passing the Alien and Sedition Acts. Okay, so we know them uh, famously by the name the Alien and Sedition Acts, but it's actually uh, four laws. Uh, so can you explain those briefly, uh, and, and then we'll talk about how they were implemented. Okay. So there are four laws. There's the um, Naturalization Act. The Constitution gives um, the government, the federal government, power over rules of naturalization. Um, and so with the Naturalization Act, they increase the residency requirement from five years to 14 years. Um, they also required um, all, not, all aliens to register. Um, they had to register with either a federal court judge um, or like a customs official or something. Um, and those reports were sent to the Secretary of, of State. Um, so they had a registry of aliens. Um, and lastly, um, if you want to become a citizen, only federal courts um, could issue certificates of naturalization. Um, previously, you could go to a state court um, and become a naturalization through a state naturalized citizen through a state court. But now only it, it was now exclusively a federal government power. And then there were two um, two laws, the Alien Enemies Act and the Alien Friends Act, which are very similar. The Alien Enemies Act was only to be implemented in times of declared war, um, and that gave the president the power to deport or to imprison um, any um, citizens of the country of which the America was at war with. Um, this, the president had that sort of blanket power. So if the United States had declared war with France, um, Adams would have been able to deport all the Frenchmen in America. And that law, unlike the other laws, was never revised and never repealed and was actually implemented and used um, during World War II to require the registration um, and, you know, of, of, of Germans, Italians, and, and Japanese in America. The Alien Friends Act um, gave those same powers to the president as the Alien Enemies Act, um, except no, there's no need to declare war. Um, so the president could um, deport or imprison or, or hold um, any alien that he felt was suspicious or posed a danger to the United States. Um, there's no trial. Um, there's no right of trial. There is no right to know the, um, the charges against you. Um, there's no due process um, guaranteed in that law. Um, and then lastly, and that, and that Alien Friends Law actually expired in June of 1800. And, and then lastly, there was the Sedition Law, um, which acted, which was the only one of the three which acted against American citizens. Um, and it basically said you couldn't write um, or, or speak um, against the government, against the government the pres or, or the president. Um, it also included a, another section um, which was against um, unlawful combinations as, as well. So groups getting together or you know, grassroots um, groups getting together and like, um, you know, if there was a riot or groups, uh, or organizations organizing against the government um, too were outlawed. And that law expired on March 3rd of eight, 1801, which turned out to be the last day that Adams was president. And so these 
proposed laws, these bills, and then the laws, they are instantly controversial as soon as they're proposed, right? Yeah, they're instantly controversial. And I mean, I spend some time in the book talking about the, their passage and the debates about them. Um, and they're really the debates over their passage, which happened in the House of Representatives mostly, um, those are we have the most extensive um, re- records of, um, those arguments get made again after. Words. I mean, they they're refined, um, but they but there's a lot of the same arguments that get made initially that get made during the broader public debate over the laws. Um, so. And so ultimately, they're going to be uh, under 20 prosecutions, very mm-hmm. comparatively few, surprisingly few. Right. Um, because there are a lot of newspapers in America at this time. Right. And um, so. Uh, were you struck by how few ha- were actually attempted, notwithstanding whether they succeed or not? Um, yes, um, to some extent, but they also went after the, the sort of the big ones, um, the big Republican newspapers. Um, and newspapers um, were able to, uh, under the post office law, newspapers could, they, editors could exchange newspapers for free. Um, and the and also newspapers could be sent from person to person at a lower rate. So newspapers traveled pretty widely throughout the, the country. And a lot of newspapers tended to reprint pieces from other papers. So you, so Bates' Aurora, there would be pieces from Bates' Aurora would appear all over the country. Um, and certainly um, the Federalist government um, thought that that was one of the most dangerous newspapers. So they tried to go after that they felt, I think they went after their most influential newspapers. Um, and then there were some prosecutions which were really initiated locally um, by local leaders. Um, and so those are more about the local politics and the land, local newspaper landscape. Um, so there, there, aren't that, there aren't that many, but I think that they tried, the Federalists were at least strategic about who they would, go, who they would try to go after. And so, um, by and large, how do the Federalist efforts at prosecuting these guys fare? Um, well, the ones that they do indict, um, they pretty much are all con- convicted. Um, they tend to have a very sh- the federal gov- the federal bench, the judiciary, of course, is all Federalists um, and all very supportive of the law and believe that it was constitutional and it was a good law. Um, and also they tended to seat on um, pretty favorable juries um, as well. So they had a very, um, uh, they were, so in that way, the prosecutions, the, the trials that they did have um, were, were successful. And I think that the defendants too um, realized that they probably were not gonna get off. Um, it was very hard um, because these were political prosecutions um, to prove the truth, which was one means of defense, if you could prove the truth of what you said, but it's very hard to tr- prove the truth of an opinion. Um, and I think the, the defendants, and the, at least in the most famous trials, um, used the trials as another platform to criticize the government. And another, you know, the trials were another example of Federalist um, corruption um, and abuse of power. Right, and they well, could use it that way. Right, and I, you were being so diplomatic in your uh, description of these trials. I mean, these are these are really like kangaroo courts, aren't they? Um, yes, but I think that the I think that the uh, many of the Federalist judges 
um, believed that part of their role and their role in the beginning of the Republic was to support the government. Um, and so I think that uh, you can't just simply dismiss their views or, or the other Federalist views as just sort of a, a witch hunt or this, the Federalists just were afraid of the opposition. They just wanted to destroy the opposition. Um, they wanted to destroy the opposition because they believed if the, op the opposition was going to destroy the country. Um, and so they, they felt that this was a real danger and this was the only way they were going to save their, their country. So. so we have examples of these newspaper editors who've, um, who are articulate. Uh, they uh, are widely read. But we also have this, this poor soul who uh, yells at John Adams in a drunken stupor. <laughs> Right. Can you tell yeah. this story? <laughs> um, well, Adams, he was on his way back to, to Quincy after a session of Congress, um, and he passed through his town in um, New Jersey. And, um, you know, it tended to, at the in these towns, they would have a bit of a parade and fire off some shots um, in honor of the president. Um, this one did... Um, this, this town did do that, and, and Luther Baldwin, who had spent the day, I guess, at the tavern with a couple of friends, because a couple of others were arrested with him, um, he, he said, in fact, he said he tried to make a joke, um, which was that, you know, they, there goes the president, and they are firing at his ass. Um, and it didn't go over well with the, with the Federalists. I said the Federalists didn't have a very good sense of humor, um, and they did prosecute him, um, uh, they believe that Baldwin was one of the few to actually just plead guilty, um, and he got off essentially with um, – he had to spend a couple of uh, – some time in jail, but he just had to pay his court costs. Um, so, And you note that one of the ironies of this is that after all these prosecutions are over, there are – is – is it a hundred percent increase almost, or or do we know exactly? There's a huge increase in There's a huge, Jeffersonian yeah. newspapers. Yeah, well, I think one thing that the alien that the Sedition Acts definitely did was made newspaper editors choose sides. I mean, there is already a partisan press before 1798. There are some newspaper editors who are trying to be neutral, um, but um, but in but with the Sedition Acts, you have to choose. Um, and so, yeah, one of the ironies is is that um, as the Federalists sort of uh, waned closer to the um, fortunes, waned closer to the election of 1800. Um, you get more Democratic Republican newspapers um, that are created. And you also know that uh, the Jeffersonians, they have this obviously legitimate fear uh, of their supporters being prosecuted. But there is also this fear of the U.S. Army potentially being utilized by the government and there's a long history to that fear uh, being an, a uh, former colony of England. And so what, how dearly held or widespread, do we have any sense for how palpable that fear was? Or was it merely an outside long shot possibility or was it something that people really thought was likely to happen? Um, I think it was, they thought, when I mean, they had the immediate experience of the Whiskey Rebellion only a few years before when the army was used against um, the the rebels in, in western Pennsylvania. And now with the def defense measures, the army was a lot, lot bigger. Um, and so, and you had a standing army. No longer did you have to, like, call out the militia, wait for them to 
to gather um, and then march them out because by the time the that militia got to Western Pennsylvania, the rebellion was basically over. Either people had gone west into the Ohio Territory or you know, they decided to go along with it. So it was over by the time the army got there. Now you had an army which was readily at the government's disposal. And so I think that the fear is there in the back of their heads. Um, and Jefferson, um, in sort of in 1799, seven, late 1799, in 1799, really, Jefferson says we have to continue our, he wrote a letter to Madison and, and to others basically saying we need to continue our criticism, continue our dissent, continue our attacks on the on the government, but we cannot be violent. Um, we we have to be firm, but but passive in some in some ways, because you're only going to invite the um, that reaction from the Federalists. By the way, do we have any idea? Um, I know he dies in 1799, but do we have any idea what George Washington thought of these laws? Um, I I I do not know. I mean, we, he um, he certainly was he was they wanted him to be the head of the new army. Um, and he was reluctant to do so. He was very reluctant to do so. Um, and um, he finally agreed that he would step in as head of the as leader of the army in the event of invasion from France. Um, but um, I so he seems supportive of, of some of the measures. Um, but that's really all I know. Um, right. And and, you know, that's a, just a, it's. In many ways, it's unimportant because he's out of the picture politically. Right. Um, I was just curious. It's something that came up when I was reading it. Um, okay, so in reaction to this, uh, we've got both Jefferson and Madison who author these famous Kentucky for Jefferson and Virginia uh, for Madison, these resolves that are voted on uh, by the legislatures of the of the respective states. Um, just could you briefly describe uh, the importance of these and also their historical importance because they they crop up again later in the 1830s. Um, yeah, well, they're the important. So in the summer, you know, after the legis after the laws were passed in June. Um, July of 1798, almost immediately there is a series of, of public meetings and, and petitions. Um, but I think that there's a somewhat of a frustration on Jefferson and Jefferson's part in particular that um, that the opposition's not gaining much traction. Um, the Federalists do gain um, seats in, in Congress. Um, and so they turn to the state legislatures um, as a sort as a way to protest um, the laws. Um, and Jefferson drafted a resolution which ended up in Kentucky, and Madison um, drafted resolutions for the Virginia legislature. Um, they would be used again in the 1830s. There's this appeal to the principles of 1798, the principles of 98. Um, Madison would said, you know, in during the nullification crisis that he rejected that use of of his resolution of his um of what happened in 19, in 1798 um he did not like the way calhoun and the nullifiers were, were using his words um so he said he never meant nullification um then um but they certainly become the symbol um of both um it's either you know a, a protest against an oppressive federal government but also a way to protect um, the institutions of, of slavery and then and even segregation um, later. What I thought was notable is we we remember them 
it seems to me that we often remember the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions for their use in the 1830s. But at the time uh, that they were proposed, written and proposed and debated, I was actually surprised that this was something that I learned uh, that was new to me, that they weren't that popular among states in the North or the South. Um, no, I mean, I think that I think Kentucky, the Kentucky resolution, and especially the way Jefferson wrote it, was very strident. And I may have gone too far um, in declaring the the laws void and of no force, which is a sort of a phrase that was repeated throughout the resolutions. Um, and certainly, there's a question here about what is the state's role or who can decide what laws are constitutional or not. And both Jefferson and Madison opened their resolutions um, declaring that states as parties to the compact um, have a right to rule on what the government um, and what the government does. And so the states therefore have a right to say, to weigh in on the constitutionality of, of a law. Uh, interestingly, Massachusetts um, resolution, um, they, and most, and a lot of the Northern resolutions, they call out, um, Virginia and Kentucky as acting unconstitutionally, um, that this is not the role of the states in the compact. Um, Massachusetts does go on to support the laws, but they very carefully say we are speaking as private citizens and not as member as not as the state legislature. But we think the laws are a really good idea. But even um, the other they, southern states aren't exactly embracing these either, right? No, in other words, no. this is not a clearly sectional. Uh, divide in terms of this compact theory or uh, this associational theory of the union, right? Right, um, and then and not right now. I mean, they will de- they will declare they do some some of the southern states do pass legislate resolutions saying they they don't they don't like they disagree with the Alien and Sedition Acts, and it's really about the Alien Friends Act and the Sedition Act. It's those two laws that is really the focus of the opposition. Um, in some states, you know, the lower house, like I think in North Carolina, um, passed a resolution declare, saying that they believe that those laws were unconstitutional, but the upper house didn't pass anything. So they don't produce anything as a state. Um, so the other, they, do, they do debate it and, cons- and consider it, um, but they don't come out stridently in support of Virginia and Kentucky's actions. Um, so in 1800, uh, the Jeffersonians will come into power in 1801, and uh, they'll stay in power for a long time. And so the Federalist uh, period of ascendance uh, or domination is really over. And what do you think, in the broad sense of American history, is the uh, are, any, are, there, are there any historical lessons? And I know historians don't always like this, but uh, <laughs> this is applied history. In other words, are there are there any lessons that can we can actually take out of the context of the 1790s and say that this this period actually may teach us about how politics should be conducted or how law should be uh, made? Are there any broad brush lessons that you think apply today? Um. Well, I think in in one in one way, um, even though um, I would not, there there was violence. Um, there were attacks on 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 um, on printers. Um, William Duane, who took over from Benjamin Franklin Beach after Beach died in a yellow fever epidemic, um, he was beaten senseless. So I'm not, I'm not saying that there's no there's no violence, but certainly the way that the debate was conducted um, 
and there's lots of insults and there was lots of disparaging and they were not always respectful of each other side um, but they certainly carried it it through and through the and through the election um, as well and talking about it and it is the first time they truly debated these issues about um, about speech um, and about um, alien um, non-citizens' rights um, as as well, um, and it is tied up in issues about federalism um, too. Um, but it is it just it's the issues weren't it wasn't like as you know at the end of in the election of eighteen hundred that these issues were magically um, resolved. And I think that maybe that is the, the most important lesson is these issues are, are revisited with new circumstances, um, new ideas, new people. Um, it's the same issues which are debated, um, but they're debated anew and reconsidered, um, too. How much dissent, how much freedom do you, are you willing to give up in order to feel safe? Um, how do you participate um, in, in, the political, in the political debate? Um, and who can participate and in, and in what ways? I mean, I think those are sort of the enduring questions um, and issues which still get grappled with. Um, today that are the sort of the same issues in many ways. All right. The book is The Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798, Testing the Constitution, and I've been joined today by Terry Diane Halperin of the University of Richmond. Thank you, Terry. Thank you for joining us on New Books in Law Network. Thank you.